in the morning when you need the news that matters most. We have a constitutional right to publish this story. We are the fourth estate and we will hold the powerful accountable. You need the front page. Wait, what's the fourth estate? Us, the press. And everyone knows that? On the press box. Because I feel like people always say the fourth estate, but they don't actually know what it means. I think everybody knows what it means. I thought the fourth estate was time. That's the fourth dimension. I thought the fourth estate was Georgia. With Graney and Bischoff. No, not state, a state. You thought I was saying we're the state of Georgia? Well, no, I must admit, I don't blame them. <laughs> All right, the front page. Let's see what's going on there. The UFC, a heartwarming moment this weekend as a fighter found out that she was able to pay her bills because she got a bonus for fighting. Adam, isn't that a beautiful moment? It's gorgeous. That That's the whole thing, Doug, right? There's nothing more to it? No, I think that's it, except perhaps that the UFC does pay its fighters what I think the lowest percentage of any uh, any major sports entity. And that, then they just signed a huge deal with ESPN. So some of their fighters, uh, let's just say UFC, their fighters uh, don't have the best union in the world. Oh, wait, they don't. <laughs> Uh, no, no, they don't. And and we talk about this because uh, Cheyenne buys a fighter who has been trying to make her way up for a while, ends up with a $50,000 bonus and talks about how she had a negative bank account prior to this and might not have been able to be able to pay her bills. Um, that's not something to celebrate. And yet the UFC is putting it out there as, look at this, what a heartwarming moment. See. Since when is someone not being able to pay their bills because of how you treat them? A heartwarming moment. This isn't like someone won the lottery. This is the company that they work for putting out there, hey, we finally paid them. You feel good? No, I don't feel good, especially not when you're an organization that is facing a class action lawsuit that could end up costing you billions of dollars based on fighters from the past saying you have not treated us fairly when it comes to compensation and that that uh, tv contract that you mentioned doug or tv slash uh pay-per-view it's 150 million dollars a year excuse me how much that would be 150 million american dollars per annum <laughs> well thank you oh wow look at that yeah you, yeah interesting interesting i will say that uh you know what if you're an organization you spin things to the way that it most reflects you in a positive moment, and that's what the UFC is trying to do. So it's up to uh, discerning eyes to decide whether you agree or disagree. Now, something else, uh, discerning eyes, boy, oh boy. You know, the older you get, the more you realize things change. I remember when I was young and certain, because as Ed alluded to earlier, I am very much into music, and certain groups would break up, and you'd be like, wow, I can't believe they break up. And then you look at the history, and you go, well, you know, groups have been breaking up since groups have been formed. I mean, let's be honest. Matthew McConaughey, well, speaking of groups that are breaking up, there's some uh, football powers that are breaking up with their conferences, but Matthew McConaughey, super Texas fan, for one, is excited that they're heading to the SEC. Woo! I really just want Matthew McConaughey to stay in the news so that Jim Carrey can do more spoof Lincoln commercials uh, of him <laughs> on Saturday Night Live because I find those wildly entertaining. Um, yeah, Matthew McConaughey says that uh, 
that the the the, uh, the history, the spirit of Texas football, Texas athletics tradition is not for the weak or timid. That's uh, that's interesting. Um, <laughs> it's been a while since Texas football made anyone feel weak or timid. So uh, I, I think Texas going to the SEC is going to do a lot more to make the Longhorns feel that way than it will the opposition unless unless Steve Sarkeesian has a lot more up his sleeve uh, than I think he does because this conference is brutal and Texas hasn't even been able to beat up on a bad Big 12 for years. So if you can't beat up on the Big 12 and you're bringing your nasty big brother with you, Oklahoma, who's been beating you around in the Red River rivalry for a while, uh, I... I, I Back to Matthew McConaughey. I enjoy. I enjoy the acting. I enjoy the personality. Uh, I, I I do not agree with his opinion on the move to the SEC. I will say one other thing. I enjoy. I thought uh, I read his book Green Lights. I thought a very good book. Very interesting. I would highly recommend it if you're at all interested in his life and some perspectives that I found. Uh, you know, whether you agree or disagree, I found very interesting. The my favorite thing while looking this up is apparently Matthew McConaughey is a chancellor of cultural appreciation yes. of the University of Texas, which I can I be that for UNLV? Like, how do we like what no, levels? You, you have to have culture, Jared. Oh, all right. I just all I want is I just like I didn't know we were just giving people titles of like he really likes the team. Wait a second. Wait a second. You didn't know. That in society we just give people titles. You didn't know that. I okay, but and you're that, a little young. All right. That's, here's that's, the thing, guys. That's what we do, guys. It's it it's you have to understand it, Doug. This is much less about Jared wanting the title than he heard appreciation and was like, oh, I could get appreciation. <laughs> you're right. The old pat on the back. You know what, Jared? You're doing a fine job here. Now, more importantly, though. As Jared pointed out, does this hurt or help his chances? Because he has been throwing out there that he might be running for governor of said state, that being Texas. Uh, I want to know what party Matthew McConaughey is going to run with. Is, is he a Republican, a Democrat, an independent, or party, is he just party, running man. as the, party, is party. he just running as the minister of party, fun? Party. <laughs> like I, I, I think he, I think if he runs as the chancellor of Texas appreciation. He has a chance. Yes, I agree. That'd be the <laughs> best right, chance. All right, all right, all right. You know what? Less parties, more uh, more parties. How's that for a slogan? That would be my slogan. Maybe I'd get more votes than the last time I ran for office. All right, here we go. Uh, Nick Bosa's girlfriend. Boy, she uh, she had some tweets in the past that uh, are being now called out for racially insensitive. It is amazing that people, you know, first of all, they go back. And then they're stunned. What? You can't go back and look at the things that I made public on social media. That's that, that's that's totally wrong. Uh, I don't know. You know, you are who you are. And when you tweet, you have to realize that's going out to the world. You know, Doug, if I were to walk out onto the strip and start yelling all of the things that I believe in this world, it would have less lasting power than a tweet. Right. Be yeah. louder. Be, it, it, it certainly would, would reach a lot of people immediately, and they would probably just go, eh, crazy dude, and walk on. Uh, yeah, it certainly lives forever, oh. even if you think you deleted it. And here's the thing about Nick Bosa's girlfriend having these racist tweets. Uh, color me as unsurprised as is possible, because Nick Bosa has a long social media history that he had to go scrub because of what were termed by some media outlets to be, quote, alt-right 
beliefs uh, in support of President Trump, in support uh, against Colin Kaepernick, against kneeling for the national anthem, et cetera, et cetera. Um, look, d- does Nick Bosa's girlfriend deserve to be at the center of all of this? Probably not. Just you know, based on do we do we go after the significant others and family members of professional athletes? But does it give us a vehicle to still be talking about the fact that yeah, if we thought Nick Bosa had really changed any of his opinions by the fact that he scrubbed his social media, the people he associates with uh, they haven't, and so I would venture to say he hasn't either. Adam, if we've established anything during this show, if you go out and start yelling things in the middle of the street, you'll start convincing people and they'll be like, well, I heard this crazy guy start yelling it, but he had a very calming and deep voice. And so we all started, you know, we got a cult. I've thought about this. (laughs) I'm not sure if I'm ready to be a cult leader. I I feel like that's a step too far. I I feel like I want to start out by just having a posse. You just want. I want to have. I just want. I just want a posse. I want like two or three hype men who will follow me around and and just point out how awesome I am. Kind of like, you know, kind of like just a four horsemen, except I'm the main horseman. (laughs) You you just need to write your science fiction book, and then you can start your cult. There you go. Oh, I got it. Got the Ale Run Hubbard reference dropped, which, by the way, I've read those 10 books of his science fiction. Thing. Talk about disturbing and somewhat interesting. There were some good parts about uh, L. Ron Hubbard, the author of science fiction books. All right. Well, that's uh, oh, Doug, ahead. before you move on. Yeah, no, you move hold on. on. Yeah, that, you can't just drop that bomb and roll. That, I, it, it, but disturbing, but also somewhat interesting is Jared's brand. So I hope right. that uh, you, you make sure that Jared is in on all this. I will. Uh, I must admit, I was not when I, because I'm an avid reader, especially uh, of science fiction and things like that. So I picked up the books. I bought them way back when, and then I was... I, I think into book four or five because it was a ten book set, and I was like, "Wow, this is this is very strange, very strange." But anyway, I move on, and uh, I'm inviting you both over to a party at my house later tonight. So uh, I've just got some people I'd like you to talk to. Now the NHL, <laughs> I'll bring the Kool Aid. <laughs> there you go. The NHL IOC unable to agree on expanded media rights deal for the 2022 Winter Olympics. Sources say, and I quote. The NHL and NHLPA retain full authority to decide not to participate should COVID-19 conditions worsen or otherwise pose a threat to the health and safety of NHL players. Of course, they put out their schedule, Adam, for the upcoming season, and there is a big gap, so they are prepared to have NHL players play, but here's kind of their... their, I guess they're legal or they're out, so to speak. What are your thoughts on the Olympics and the NHL? Gary Bettman and Bill Daly need to spare us all the sanctimony. Seriously. Oh, blame it on COVID. It's about COVID. That's crap. It's about money. This has always been about money for the NHL. This has always been about the NHL being compensated in the way that it feels is proper for shutting down business for a month. That's all this is about. And if they want to use COVID as the excuse, 
well, fine, if COVID is actually, you know, at that time, something that would cause the problem that the NHL would not want to get itself involved in. But that's not really what this is about. This is about Gary Bettman not wanting to shut down business and his owners not wanting to shut down business for a month in order to let the players go off and play in, in the Olympic Games where they put their health at risk and the NHL doesn't get any money in return. I will say, and this is naive on my part, but I found the Olympics, and I'm older, especially than Jared. Uh, actually, I don't know. I think I'm older than you also, Adam. But I, no I, one knows Adam's age. Good. He's announced it several times on the air, and we still don't know it. Oh, there we go. I, I'm going to write it down next time. I, I think looking at Adam, I'd say I'm a little bit older than him. Or he's just aged very well, which it will happen to a cult leader at times. But I will say this. I enjoyed the Olympics so much more win and i realize other countries weren't you know quote unquote amateur athletes but i enjoyed it so much more when our teams were and i realize the nhl has players from all over the globe so it's not just this does not just affect by any means the american or the canadian teams but i just you know what give the amateurs their shot there there's enough amateur hockey players let that be the Olympics and let the professionals be playing in the NHL. And whether you take a break or not, just so people can watch the Olympics, that's fine. But I, is that is that naive on my part? It gets tricky with the Olympics because of the amount of international players that we're talking about, I think, when it's with hockey. Um, but no, I don't think it's naive. I, I, I think it's nostalgic. Uh, I, but at the same time, I'm also someone who has come around, especially in the last few years, to thinking why are we still doing the Olympics? I, I don't necessarily know what we're what we're accomplishing. Every city who puts on the Olympics ends up losing at minimum hundreds of millions yes. of dollars, if not more. We build a bunch of stadiums that end up getting junked. Uh, no one ends up financially better for this other than NBC and other broadcast networks who are selling advertising for this. And most sports that we actually watch and care about have other championships that we care about more. Olympic soccer's cool. Everybody cares more about the World Cup. Olympic tennis is fun. We watch the majors. Olympic golf is fun. We watch the majors, right? Hockey, yes, of course, it's the Stanley Cup. Even gymnastics and swimming have world championships that people care about. I, I just, I don't even really understand what we're doing with it, period. And so, don't get me wrong, I don't mean to sympathize uh, or empathize with Gary Bettman and his weird fascination with uh, keeping his players out of the Olympics, but at the same time, I have to be honest, I've watched almost none of the Olympics this year. I must admit that the Olympics is on in studio here, and it is more of the Olympics than I've watched in the entirety of it. And back in, and this will show my age, back in 72, 76, and even 80, that was that was that in the Major League Baseball All-Star Game when I was a young guy were the two biggest things to watch, the Olympics and the Major League Baseball. And Major League Baseball, that's how old I am. I'm saying MLB All-Star Game. So I'll tell you what, when we come back, though, we'll turn our attention to the Vegas Golden Knights. Adam Candy has a few thoughts, and given his soft, sensuous voice, you're going to want to hear him. This is the Press Box with Doug Douglas and Adam Candy. And filling in today and tomorrow, Ed and Adam will be back on Thursday, and then it'll be the Adam and Doug show once again on Friday before, oh, the Whole hee-haw game is, gang is basically back. But right now, we will turn our attention to the Vegas Golden Knights. As I have here, that we are prepared for a candy rant, and it has something to do with 
Alex Tuck's injury? Rant feels so strong. Um, held opinion. Because um, we, we know in sports, all opinions are held. Uh, mine happens to be that the Vegas Golden Knights really screwed up how they disclosed the Alec Tuck situation with his shoulder surgery and the fact that he's going to be out for six months. Um, and this goes into a larger question of how NHL teams handle injuries and their disclosure. And even into the Evander Kane situation with the allegations that he bet on hockey and even on his own game. So if you haven't been following it closely, Alex Tuck is, of course, out uh, well into next season after having offseason shoulder surgery. My experience in these areas, both as a reporter and as a human who's had shoulder issues, uh, is that you don't tend to find out on the spur of the moment that you need shoulder surgery. Uh, these are the sorts of things that whether it goes back to an injury in the playoffs, whether it's something he played through the whole year, it doesn't matter. It, it, you know, the details of this are unimportant. What matters is that the Vegas Golden Knights knew for a long time that Alex Tuck was going to need shoulder surgery. And so we went through weeks of talking about what will this team do? How will they handle their salary cap? Who's coming in? What are they going to do with this lineup, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so they trade Marc-Andre Fleury. They trade Ryan Reeves. They acquire Evgeny Dadunov. And especially the Dadunov uh, acquisition, we looked at and said, huh, why are they bringing in another winger? That doesn't make any sense. And they got up there and talked about the acquisition of Dadunov and talked about how he could help on the power play. And we talked about the salary cap and said, how is this all going to fit? We don't understand. On, non, non. And then after all of this is done, after we have all of the speculation out there, then it comes out. Then after everything, the Golden Knights finally say, by the way, Alex Tuck had shoulder surgery and he's out six months. And so now we know he's on long-term injured reserve. It opens up some cap space. Who knows what the team ultimately decides to do to manage that once he comes back later in the year. But it's a more systemic issue with the NHL and the fact that we let the NHL get away with this vague, inconsistent injury reporting that no other major sport is able to get away with. And the deeper we get into leagues being tied up in sports betting, the deeper this problem goes. So understand a couple of things. First of all, the NHL has deals with multiple sports books. They have five marketing deals. One of them involves the NHL having an equity stake in points bet. They own part of a sports book right now. The NHL owns a piece of sports gambling. And one of the things that is central to being able to bet on sports is having an accurate injury report. That's why we have the NFL injury report that we have. The NFL reports injuries multiple times per week. They give you a clear picture of who is able to go at any given time. The NBA does the same. The NBA puts out its injury report three times a day. And it might not give you down to the actual place on the body this toe or this finger is injured information. It might not go even as deep as the NHL used to go when, and I'm not kidding, back in the 70s, someone's injury was listed as, I'm quoting this, bleeding from the testicles. So we know that the NHL did have a time when it put its information out there. Even Major League Baseball will give you some version of information. The NHL is the only league that tries to get away with upper body injury and lower body injury. Now, it's been traced back by some to roughly enough 1999 or so when the Maple Leafs had an injury in the playoffs when Pat Quinn was coaching there. Uh, they called it an upper body injury. The paper knew that it was a shoulder injury, reported it as a shoulder injury, and caught hell from the team. And Bill Daly, the uh, number two in the NHL, 
talked about how now with the sports betting companies, they haven't received any requests from the sports betting companies to change their policies. It's not the sports betting companies who stand to lose anything. It's the betters who stand to lose something. It's the betters who are the ones who are put at a disadvantage by not knowing what's going on. And so in the past, you could just say, well, tough. You're the one who's choosing to bet on the game. Nobody's forcing you to do it. It's changed now. Gary Bettman needs to understand the box that he's opened when he reaches in for the cash that sports betting can bring him because inside that box is also an obligation to be much clearer with everybody out there about how injuries are handled. And we've seen no indication that the NHL is going to change this. We don't see anything that says that the NHL thinks this is a problem. It is a problem. Just listing injuries as upper body injury and lower body injury is one thing. Handling it the way the Golden Knights handle it where the guy could be on his deathbed and they would say he's week to week is ridiculous. It's insulting to the fans when the fans don't have any idea when the players that they buy jerseys of and come out to the game to see will be playing. It's not right for the fans. It's not right for people who are betting on sports. It really isn't right for the sports betting partners because it leads to worries about insider information. It, worry, it leads to worries about if you've got professional bettors out there who have relationships with people around teams and they've got information about someone's injury and they might be able to wager based upon it, then that's when the sports betting companies start to get hurt by it. So they might eventually have an issue with it too. So the NHL needs to get around to modernizing itself in this way and say every other major professional sports league in the United States has a detailed injury report that it releases on a regular schedule. They, get, they have an idea in their heads that there's a competitive disadvantage. Oh no, well now they'll target the injury. Anybody who can watch video knows what the injury was. They can figure it out. It doesn't matter if it's the knee or the ankle. If someone wants to go after the guy and take a run at his leg, they're gonna take a run at his leg. So stop with this whole game of upper body injury and lower body injury. And more importantly to the Golden Knights, be straight with us. You haven't been straight with us about injuries for the entirety of the time that you've existed. And it's insulting when you make off-season moves that fans get all excited about. We have trade deadline specials. You announce all these things. You have media interest that ends up drumming up more money for you in the long run. Well, be honest with your fans. Alex Tuck didn't show up one day and say, I need shoulder surgery. And it happened to be after you acquired Evgeny Dadanoff or Dadanoff. I apologize happened over the course of much time so let's act like it let's come around to the modern day let's realize that you are getting money from companies that need you to modernize this from people who take part with those companies who you want to spend money with you and with those companies that you market with you need to modernize and come along with them well i will say this uh transparency when you are a league that is now associated with gambling entities I have to agree with you 100%. Once you do that, you better be transparent about everything because there should be no inside information. So well done, Adam. When we come back, we will talk about the NFL with senior NFL writer Charles McDonald from the USA Today. Best the two best doctors in the world. What's the time frame? And here's the answer. The answer is the time frame is 5 to 12 weeks. That's the time frame for this injury. That's a big range, okay? And there's no way to know where you're going to fall in that continuum until you get into the rehab process. Obviously, we're optimistic and hopeful that we can be on the front end, somewhere towards the front end of that. But the reality is you can be anywhere in that spectrum. 
You're locked in the press box with Doug Douglas and Adam Candy. That was Frank Reich of the Indianapolis Colts talking about Carson Wentz's injury. And we bring on Charles McDonald, senior NFL writer for the win from USA Today. Charles, thank you much for joining us today. And have second and third string quarterbacks ever been more coveted in this early time of training camp? Uh, I guess not. I mean, this is a pretty weird time. I mean, it, it just seems like Carson Wentz has, like, the most unfortunate injury luck out of pretty much any quarterback that I can think of in recent memory. Uh, and, you know, it, it's just kind of crazy that you're talking about the trade stipulations back uh, earlier in the offseason when they made the trade with the Eagles, and now uh, before the season's even started, it looks like they're probably going to be missing out on uh, what could have been a first-round pick in return for Carson Wentz, So. You know, yeah, the, the Colts, they're going to see, I, I guess, what what Jacob Eason has in the tank. I don't think he played at all last year uh, sitting behind Philip Rivers, but he can throw the ball really far, so maybe Frank Wright can make it look like a respectable offense in the meantime. Do you think that the smoke coming from the Colts camp about not trading for a quarterback is accurate? Do they think you think you're going to give Eason time to show what's there? Or do you think ultimately this team probably needs to make a move at least for some sort of insurance to Carson Wentz being out on the longer side of that time frame? Uh, I mean, if I were them, I would definitely be trying to look around maybe for some other insurance. I don't really know where you go, like outside of uh, trading for Jimmy Garoppolo, which seems to be a very unpopular idea uh, around the uh, Colts fans. So I'm not sure if they would uh, actually pull that off. But, you know, it, it just it, it's kind of hard to believe that this team can go in and, you know, be what they're supposed to be with Carson Wentz is going to miss potentially like half the season. Uh, that's a, a pretty tough pill to swallow. So, you know, if you're actually looking at this, you know, I, I guess one thing with this is like it's such a wide range of – you know, time that he could miss, like five to 12 weeks. Like that's either you're missing like the first game or you're missing half the season. I don't really understand like how that time frame is possible. So if it's five weeks, then, you know, maybe you just take your lumps with Easton for a game or two if you have to. But if it's 12, you should probably be looking at uh, an outside option coming in because I, don't, I just don't think that Easton is in a place where you just want to hand him the keys to what could potentially be a playoff team in, in the AFC South, which is not the most difficult. Uh, vision to compete in. So I'm not sure like who that guy would be, but if I were them and we're actually looking at this like a 12-week injury, I would definitely be looking at a, a quarterback to bring in. Maybe, like I said, Jimmy Garoppolo is not in a, a popular answer, but he's an answer that makes sense for where this team is. And we've seen that, you know, Frank Reich with the Jacoby Brissett years, like he can, he can scheme up an offense for an average quarterback. So maybe Jimmy G could come in and do some nice things for them. Speaking with Charles McDonald from the USA Today. Charles, of course, we would be remiss if we didn't bring up a very important birthday today, and that would be 44-year-old Tom Brady. Does it seem to you with all the... Oh, in- brother. <laughs> oh, oh. <laughs> <So>, well, <laughs> you're listed as a senior. <laughs> you're listed as a senior NFL writer, so we're talking about a senior citizen quarterback. It just all, you know, it, it practically writes itself. But given that, you look at the Tampa Bay Buccaneers and, you know, basically returning, you know, their entire roster, is age being now, should it be discounted somewhat with the way people can train now? And you look at, you know, one hit in the NFL and a 22-year-old can be down. So 
is age kind of being blurred now, or should we take a different look at what happens with aging rosters and aging players, perhaps? Uh, I guess to me that's kind of a latency because Tom Brady is just like such an unprecedented case. I mean, 44, and no one really questions the fact that he's still one of the better quarterbacks in the league. Uh, I guess it's kind of a latency thing to me because Aaron Rodgers, uh, prior to this MVP season, uh, like the idea that the fa- that the Packers would be in a position where maybe they want to consider a quarterback after you know his tenure didn't wasn't so crazy at the time before he had this MVP season. Then he came back uh, at what thirty seven years old, thirty six, thirty seven in that range, and put on one of the best uh, seasons of his career, if not just like the outright best season of his career. So uh, maybe maybe we are turning a corner where like the technology and medicines get to a point where. Uh, these guys can play later into their careers. But, you know, I don't really want to use Tom Brady as an example of it because that's just, like, such a weird outlier uh, in terms of performance. I mean, uh, Super Bowl performance was strong. The, the games leading up to that were pretty strong in the playoffs. And uh, I just think it's kind of unfair to expect, like, other guys to age like that, especially when we just saw Drew Brees. Uh, his arm kind of, you know, turned to pull pork toward the end of uh, <laughs> his tenure in New Orleans. So, uh, you know, Brady's an outlier, and I think he always will be, but I'm really interested to see what happens with guys like Aaron Rodgers and Matt Ryan as they start to approach their 40s and get into their 40s, because that, to me, would be a better signifier that these guys are going to play longer than whatever Tom Brady's got going on over there. <laughs> well, well, from from older players, let's go to some younger players. Uh, you tweeted uh, a couple days ago with the reports that the Raiders had Damon Arnett and Cleef Furl running on the second team that uh, – Taking Furl at four is one of the most baffling draft decisions you can remember. And, hey, I'm right there with you, man. Um, and now John Gruden comes out here in year three of Cleef Furl and says, I think his best pass rush might be inside. So in year three, <laughs> are we now figuring out that Cleef Furl, first of all, probably wasn't the fourth overall pick in the draft, and second of all, isn't an edge rusher? Uh, yeah, I mean, that's, that's pretty insane. And just going back to the draft, I mean, at the time – I don't like they weren't obviously like he was behind Nick Bosa, but I don't think anyone had him over guys like Brian Burns and Josh Allen, and those guys have proven to be better pros um, in their short time. So, like it's just such a weird misevaluation of Cleveland Farrell, and now just say, oh, you know, maybe he's better inside. Well, I, I, I guess like one, like how did you not have a better plan for him when you drafted him if you're just now figuring this out? Uh, two. Obviously, it's insane. Like, you used the fourth overall pick on a guy a couple years ago, and now you're going to put him at a position that he didn't play at Clemson. Because you got to remember, when Cleveland was at, at Clemson, they had Christian Wilkins and Dexter Lawrence, who were also first-rounders. So there was no reason for him to even really try playing on the inside uh, of the defensive line. So this is like going to be completely uncharted territory for them. And it just kind of goes back to the amount of draft cattle draft capital that the Raiders have wasted over the past few years. Now, you know, there are arguments of who's in charge of the first round, who's in charge of the rounds after that, but I think it's fair to say that John Gruden has a, a strong a strong say in whatever happens with those premium draft picks. And, you know, if you go back to that year where they had the three first-round picks, I mean, you picked Cleveland for uh, Josh Jacobs, 24, who's, you know, turned out to be a, a solid running back, but not like a world beater or anything. And then you have 
Jonathan Abram, who is just like playing his own little game on defense, where <laughs> it's it's not even like he's following the rules or anything. He's just trying to see whose head he can knock off, and then he ends up getting himself hurt too. Like it's just it's it's just a mess. And you know, Damon Arnett uh, doesn't really seem like that turning out the way that they wanted to. And we'll see what happens with Leatherwood, who you know, actually was a pretty big fan of coming out of Alabama. But uh, it's just baffling to see like. They've wasted so much draft capital, and with other teams, you know, usually you start seeing like the heat turned up on the head coach or the GM. Someone's getting fired. I mean, if you're wasting four or five first round picks in a short amount of time, uh, that's no good. But John Gruden seems to be Darth Vader over there, and I don't know anyone who's going to be able to fire Darth Vader until his contract turns up. So, you know, it, it's uh, going to be a fun few years to see what happens with this team. But uh, I just feel like you're also in a spot where Derek Carr is going to seem like he's going to receive like an unnecessary amount of blame because I feel like he's like quietly been one of the few bright spots for the team over the past few years, but the supporting cast has just gotten worse and worse every single year. And you're seeing that because they've made so many draft picks. Speaking with Charles McDonald, senior NFL writer for the win USA today, would you say that the Broncos perhaps have the most boring QB competition in all of NFL history? Oh yeah, because it's not good enough, you know. Like, <laughs> no matter what you do, like you're not good enough here. Because, you know, I guess in a division that doesn't feature Patrick Mahomes and Herbert and Carr, yeah, maybe we can get ourselves talking about a Teddy Bridgewater through lock quarterback battle. But like, who cares? Like, it's not. It's just it's just not good enough to get the job done. I think we all know that. And I guess a frustrating part for Broncos fans is. The rest of the roster is pretty good. I mean, that defense, they got a lot of talent in the secondary. Obviously, we know what they can do up front. Uh, they got one of the like best young skill groups in the league with Corton Sutton, Terry Judy, uh, Javante Williams, who they just dropped out of UNC, Noah Fant. I mean, there are pieces here for this team to go on a run, but you don't have the quarterback play that you need to have. Uh, and I just can't imagine how frustrating it is for even some players on defense who are like, man, like, we're going up against. Justin Herbert and Mahomes and Derek Carr, like all these guys who have been proven to put up good numbers when they get the chance. And we're coming in with Drew Locke and Teddy Bridgewater. I mean, I don't really know what you do because with Teddy, you're probably not going to get like the big plays that Drew can, but it's going to be a steadier arm. And with Drew, yeah, you could throw four touchdowns, but it might come with four picks too, or maybe he just does nothing. It's just throwing, you know, bad balls all day. So, uh, it just kind of feels like almost a wasted season for Denver when they have, outside of that, like a championship-ready roster. Charles, when we look back on this season, from training camp on through, whose August and one mixtape is going to have proven to be more right, C.D. Lamb or Kyle Pitts? Because it feels like I see crazy highlights of both of these guys every single day and you get hyped up for both of them but you know that it's still just training camp and you know you can't get too excited about things but uh do you think both these guys come out and have huge seasons or do you have a belief in one more than the other uh i think they're both gonna have huge seasons i just think with cd it's a little more difficult because you have like two proven weapons i think on the outside with Gallup and amari cooper that you have to share target with and obviously cd's gonna get his but you know, Kyle Pitts, he's stepping into what is about to be like the biggest target vacuum that the NFL team in quite some time because Julio Jones, like he was pulling in, you know, 180, 200 targets some seasons. And now, you know, Pitts can see uh, 
Pitts is going to see a large, like a large bulk of those to share with Calvin Ridley. So uh, I just think when you look at Pitts and not only the size and the athleticism, but also the matchup he's going to get where, you know, there's not going to be a lot of games where he sees the other team's best cornerback. Uh, a lot of times it's going to be matched up on linebackers and safeties or even smaller slot cornerbacks. Like, I don't know if you guys saw the catch that he had today in practice where he just looked like a titan compared to the guys in the secondary. And I think that, you know, that maybe uh, is going to give him an advantage year one as he starts to get used to the speed and physicality in the NFL game. Thank you, Charles. We appreciate it. And you can follow Charles at 4 on Twitter to get all the latest breaking news. Thank you much for joining us today. Thanks for having me, guys. You got it. And when we come back, we will talk a little bit of the betting market and prop swap and see what we could be making and what is moving in the betting market. Coming up next on the Press Box. And welcome back to the Press Box. Doug Douglas and Adam Candy filling in for Ed and Tyler. We'll be in again tomorrow and then... Friday, once again, Thursday, Ed Graney will be back from his long commute from Raiders training camp in Henderson, Nevada. We are efforting to get Luke Perdandy from Prop Swap on. We're going to talk to him about the uh, Colts futures because of Wentz's injuries. It was kind of interesting yesterday. Nick Foles made available to the media. Of course, Nick Foles right now, number three on the depth chart for the Chicago Bears. And, boy, did he have some great words of praise for Frank Reich and the Colts. And it's just, wouldn't that be something? If the Colts go back to being the Eagles, what would we call them, Eagles version 2.0 in having Foles and Wentz in the quarterback fold? Eh, Who knows? But Charles McDonald, we just talked to USA Today has never been more of an exciting time to be talking about second and third string quarterbacks in the NFL. We will go on that the uh, Las Vegas Aviators did lose last night to the Tacoma Rainiers. They'll play again tonight, as you probably heard, in those exciting sports updates. Almost as exciting as the traffic updates. Boy, that guy. We got to get that guy on the air more. They will be playing one last night at the Las Vegas ballpark at 7.05 against the Rainiers. Aviators having a little bit, a little bit below 500, but a fun time out at the Las Vegas ballpark. So given that, I think now we are going to go and find out what you should be betting on. Is that correct there, Mr. Jared? No, we are going to Steven because uh, he picked up his phone. But isn't he telling us who we're going to be betting on? Isn't he a sharp it's time to find the sharp. Brought to you by PropSwap, where smart sports bettors buy and sell sports bets. Go to PropSwap.com today and find the very best odds. Steven, it is Doug Douglas here. Unfortunately, no Tyler or Ed, but prove that you are a sharp. Jared says you are untouchable when it comes to this and that your word is golden. Where, where are we looking to make some money today? Well, today we're going to go with a women's basketball. We're going to take the U.S. They're on a 52-game winning streak in the Olympics, and they're getting revenge off an exhibition game against Australia last month where they lost by three points. So we're going to take the U.S. women's basketball to win straight up. 
Win straight up. What is uh, what is that looking like? I would assume that they are still, even though they lost last time, they would still be the favorite. So are are they minus right now? Uh, they're, they're only like minus 1,200. Okay. All right. So uh, he... The best part was yesterday. What was it that uh, had you bet every single one of your picks you would win and bet it at a hundred dollars? You would have won ninety-one. Was that the was that the stat you gave us yesterday? Yes. If I did a sixteen parlay, which would normally pay four thousand dollars, my sixteen would have paid like ninety-two dollars and fifty-one cents. But guaranteed money. <laughs> guaranteed money. Yes. Yes. Well, I will say this. Stephen, I am into horse racing, and uh, I have a friend, and he and I are horse racing. We bet almost every week, especially during the pandemic, especially when nothing else was going on. We would be betting races in uh, all over the world, Los Alamitos, et cetera, et cetera. And we had one one weekend we decided to do nothing but show bets, which, if you're into horse racing, is third place. And you just do favorites, and you do favorites on show bets. So if you do a $2 bet, usually you'll make about $0.10. Cents. And we thought that was our way to grind out through the pandemic and make a lot of money. And, Stephen, we did not make money on that. So I'm not sure there's anything as sure as a show bet in a five-horse race, and yet you can still lose. So, uh, sure thing. I don't know. Well, most of my bets to this point have been around the minus 10,000, minus 8,000 price range. So I'm taking a risk here with minus 1,200. All right. Well, thank you, Stephen. We appreciate it. And there you go. Women's basketball straight up against Australia tonight. Thank you, Stephen. All right, the pair. All right, so th- this this uh, this is what I like to call a fun segment. I accidentally had Adam Candy muted that entire time, and he has been talking with us. Oh, yes. So Adam, please join the show. <laughs> Jeez. It's okay. I I just was uh, I was going to weigh in for a second on on horses and say that. If you're going to bet horses, Doug, you should be betting on Tyler's fake digital horses. I will not. Uh, You probably know this, Adam, since you are a man of the world. I actually own real horses through a thing called, I've become somewhat uh, fallen in love with something called MyRaceHorse.com. So I actually own a very small, small, small percentage of real horses. In fact, one that even won the Kentucky Derby. So when I hear Tyler and Ed getting all excited now, Granted, it's mostly Tyler getting excited about these fake horses. I'm like, come on, get a real horse owner in. And now that's what you've got today on the press box. A real horse owner, a partial owner of Authentic, a Kentucky Derby winning horse. So you can take your fake horses, Tyler, that are born or created one day and then raced on the same day. I have to wait years for my horses to mature. Uh, I need to know what is the greatest name of a horse that you own a piece of? Uh, well, I will say this because I bought into a thing where I bought into a couple two-year-olds, and when they're two-year-olds, they aren't fully named yet. So I and my wife and my kid put up, you were able to try to name the horses, and we thought we had some great names. Uh, none of our names got picked. I will say the best one that probably got picked was a riff on uh, a MC Hammer song. Dear God. Yeah, well, that, that you know, horse racing owners skew old, too. So MC Hammer is, you know, cutting edge for them. I think it was uh, something to the effect of can't touch this. Just right, which I thought was short, simple, and can't touch this. That's good for a horse. So I liked it. I'm very disappointed that owning a piece of a horse does not allow you to name the horse. I feel like you should have a much bigger say 
in being able to name the horse. Well, considering that I think I own like 0.001% of any horse, that would be the Name problem. a hoof! <laughs> yes, we'll come up with names. Anyway, coming back, top of the hour, we'll get to the remix. 